Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And I'm Nate. Welcome, Nate. Welcome. Uh, so, Spectology is a science fiction book club podcast where each month we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over two episodes. This is our first episode this month, so this will be a pre-read, uh, essentially spoiler-free episode, although we'll talk a little bit about spoilers in a bit here. Um, and the book that we're reading this month is called Semiosis by Sue Burke. Um, it's a book that's kind of about a group of humans that go to a new planet to colonize it, but they're a very small group of people and they encounter a lot of difficulties, uh, with the kind of flora and fauna of this new world. Um, so it's a really interesting book. It's a book that Nate, my friend Nate, uh, has read and recommended to us, um, read through one of his book clubs. So, uh, yeah, uh, to also introduce our guest, Nate is a friend of mine from like elementary school and high school. Yeah, we Kindergarten, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It's kindergarten. We I, I hope that this becomes a, a pod where Nate like you know provides some like key like secret oh, yeah, yeah, content. I got, the, I got the dirt. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so Nate, Nate and I grew up together. Um, you know, I think we were really friends in middle school and high school mostly. Um I do remember though at kindergarten. Uh, folks couldn't tell us apart, so I was constantly being called. No Nate, way! Nate was constantly being called Adrian. Did yeah. not know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we. Uh, yeah, Nate. Do you? And now, so Nate. Uh, also, I just get recently moved back up to Alaska. Also, like builds video games for a living, has a video game Ectolibrium on Steam, which is really awesome, Steam Early Access. So, um, Nate, do you just want to talk a little bit about yourself, who you are, the stuff you've done, that kind of thing? Also, um, an author? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, that's that's accurate. I just moved back to Alaska, and re- we've released our first uh, Early Access game. So it's still early in development, but hopefully should be done uh, by the end of this year, if all goes as planned. And... Um, uh, I've written uh, some science fiction in the past. I've been read science fiction my whole life, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, self-published, and also uh, worked as a ghostwriter on uh, other stories, which I, which I guess I can't talk about if I'm going to be professional. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, you yeah. know, our our byword is professional. Oh yes, so. yes, it's actually my middle yeah. name. Uh, we'll um, just bleep it all out. Um, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I've seen some of the assets for your game, and they're really, really cool. Adrian, mm-hmm. a long time ago, was showing off some of the like gameplay footage from a cool. really early build, and yep. it was just super cool. Cool. Th- thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's gone through a bunch of iterations, and this one, uh, it's sort of a, a 2.5D platformer where you, you play as a little alien creature, and you can uh, you sprout seeds and uh, you know spread alien life throughout a, the game world. So uh, I'm hoping it takes off here if nothing else we're learning a lot so it's good <laughs> i'm gonna put you on the spot with a random silly question if you had to give an elevator pitch as in you know the format for elevator pitches it's like x meets y but z like uh-huh. how would you how <laughs> oh, would you man. elevator pitch this game okay let me think about that for a second um odd world meets yeah i don't know i mean honestly i'm, I'm kind of struggling to answer oh, okay okay sorry. maybe uh, maybe messiah did you ever play any of the old like shiny oh, yeah. games uh so there's like Ooh. uh no but i, I guess uh, this this is I'm, I'm already well beyond my budget time budget for a uh, an elevator <laughs> fisher it's just the ums and uh uhs but uh uh 
basically there's this old company shiny made these games that were really just fucking weird they made games uh they didn't they didn't have any concern for uh whether they were commercially viable which i think is why why shiny doesn't exist anymore but um, <laughs> but, but why they, we're still talking they had about the really game. creative games for a while there and uh and so we're you know we're following that model uh, of uh, imminent extinction uh, <laughs> that business model <laughs> yeah. yeah business model of not having a business model yeah exactly great <laughs> art. Yeah. i guess this is the point where i should say i have consulted with nate on the business model of the game a little bit i don't know if i've done a very oh, good right, job yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> with marketing and stuff like why that why would I you wait until after i shit on the business model to like admit that <laughs> uh, because it's the funniest time to do it <laughs> uh, it is really cool though i mean i've been watching the development of this game for um i mean like the last couple of years as nate's been building it and it's really cool to see how far it's come and uh also just like really neat to get to like talk to you know i feel like you know alaska is the like middle square of spectology bingo and so it's fun to bring someone else on who can like you know corroborate my crazy fucking stories oh, about yeah. growing up in alaska <laughs> hey, that's, that's not something I, to, to better answer your question really quick i, I think rather than saying Oddworld plus uh, another game i would say Oddworld plus tide pools uh, speaking of Alaska, because because the the themes are very tide poolish and totally, cool. yeah, totally. That, that is very appealing. Okay, so we'll cool. we'll put a link to the to the early access, the Steam early access, in the show notes and everything like that. But it's uh, Ectolibrium on Steam, and uh, yeah, let's move into talking about the book a little bit. Um, real quick, Adrian already mentioned this, but uh, and, you know, normally we try to keep spoilers to a minimum, but I think. You know, in the spirit of so many foods that say like sugar free, but actually include like some <laughs> random type of sugar that the FDA says you can still say sugar free even it's if you have that in. Sugar. <laughs> We're gonna be uh this is a sugar free episode. We're actually gonna have um maybe some kinds of spoilers that we wouldn't normally um yeah. hopefully it's a won't. tough book to talk about at all without spoiling elements of it so you know if you're very hardcore no spoilers whatsoever like matt is i would just recommend read the book it's cool uh maybe listen to us talk about the content warnings and then read the book it's cool um we'll get right into that and beyond that it's uh you know we're gonna do our best but i think it's also it's just we're gonna be towing the line a little bit more than we normally would um is what i'd say and part of that comes because uh, you know we'll just kind of start talking about it now so the book is called semiosis by sue burke um you know i already gave the little kind of elevator pitch for it it was published just last year in 2018 in february um and it's the sort of like post-apocalyptic slash survival slash colonization slash first contact kind of book um and one interesting thing about it is that each chapter follows a different character. So like it's set up in chapters and the chapters are kind of short story esque And each chapter kind of like has one main conflict, has a first person character that it follows for the most part. Um, and the chapters all actually jump forward in time. Uh, so they it like sometimes they jump whole generations, sometimes just a few years, but they keep kind of like moving the story faster, much more quickly than you would in a in a traditional novel. Um, so in some ways, it almost feels like I mean, it's not a fixer upper. It's not like it wasn't published as short stories <laughs> and then crammed together, but it has a little bit of that like feel and texture to it. 
um, <laughs> which is cool. It's really neat. Um, and the other thing I wanted to get to early on, too, is just talking about content warnings, because um, our conversation will mention some of these. And also, like, if you're going to read the book, you should know uh, there's actually a like sexual assault and rape scene really early on, I'd say, in the in like midway through the second chapter um, that happens. Uh, and there's also a fair amount of like extreme violence, torture and kind of like very like it's very on screen. It's also like, you know, we've talked about this before, the difference between like violence that's glorified versus violence that's like meant to be horrific or sort of like, you know, it's just like they're in a very tough situation and it's being very realistic about that situation. Um, but I do think that it's worth just calling that out early on. And that might be a thing that some of our, you know, listeners don't want to read at all would like to know before they get into reading it you know kind of kind of however you deal with that um but i wanted to at least like call that out because i i don't think we've had another story that is quite this explicit about this kind of stuff since the sparrow maybe really oh so i this is interesting for me because um as is my usual habit i started reading the book without knowing literally anything about it so this is all new information for me and yeah um, quite interested to yeah. know it I will say it's way better handled than the Sparrow, <laughs> just to be clear about that. But, you know, it's also, you know, for, for anyone who hasn't uh, listened to our Sparrow episodes, did not like. Um, but it, it's, you know, I just want to be, like, realistic about that stuff and let people know beforehand because it can be really jarring if you don't know going definitely. into it. I'd say jarring, jarring is a good word for it because it's pretty uh, dispersed throughout store, uh, content that's otherwise unrelated to that. And so mm -hmm. it definitely catches you off guard sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, it's a cool novel because it's very much about like the hardships of of like I keep saying growing up, but it's like about building a society over like time. Um, but a lot of that deals with like each new generation kind of like growing up in the society that's been built so far and trying to build it themselves further. And so it's a cool book. It's really it's really neat and interesting. But it also, you know, part of looking at that stuff is looking at, you know, some really unpleasant and not so pretty aspects of like human life um yeah so i have some other book facts is like we said book facts <laughs> what what did you hear something i didn't hear anything <laughs> just snorted damn it <laughs> um it uh did so it came out just in 2018 february 2018 um the nebula uh nominations are just out it was not nominated for nebula like best novel on the nebulas but it did make a bunch of like recommended reading lists and best of 2018 lists um the new york public library the locust 2018 list the verge thrillist vulture chicago review of books texas library association it hit the like top 10 or just best books of 2018 um sometimes best books at all not just like best science fiction books too so it um it's been very well received, I'd say, popularly. Um, a little bit. The reception has reminded me a little of uh, Station Eleven um, mm -hmm. from a few years ago um, uh, by Emily St. Vincent Mandel. And so I, you know, I don't know if I don't know how similar they are. I have read that one, and that's a it's quite a good book about building society after an apocalypse. So it might may actually have some other content similarities in addition to the, the reception. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it feels kind of like, you know, not to go too far off the rails, but often like post-apocalyptic books are the most likely kind of like crossover genre fiction books, right? Like you'll Especially see. Especially nowadays. It's yeah. very hip right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this isn't quite post-apocalyptic. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> no idea. Yeah. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but it definitely, it, you know, it's, it's definitely more science fictional than a lot of those books though, which is kind of cool. Like it's, it's, you know, and Nate, maybe you can say a little bit more, but it, it definitely feels like, you know, a more science fictional crossover version of that, which is really fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't read uh, station 11, so I can't speak to that specifically, but I, I know, um, I think the science fiction in this book to me uh, seems like science that would be more uh, approachable to to a lot of non hard SF people. Um, mm. It's not a lot of, uh, you know, spacefaring logistics and and uh, things like that. It's more about the, the nitty gritty yeah, like of colony sociology life. Yeah, and yeah. biology yeah. and ecology yeah. and evolution yeah. and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, I mean, semiotics like the So maybe it's worth saying that semiosis is a term from semiotics which is the study of symbols and language um that describes the process by which like signs become symbols the process by which we imbue meaning into symbols um it's a very like heavy heady theoretical term and um you know without getting too deep into it it's very clearly like a big theme of the book too it's like what what is meaning like so what? that's really interesting to me. I've so at this point I have read only like the first like 10 pages. So I've really not <laughs> seen any of the stuff that you guys have mentioned. You've read a right. lot more of it than I have. And so I'm really curious to see how that's going to come <laughs> up. Um, would you say that, that would you say that this book without giving too much away touches on some like postmodern themes or some like themes about like the nature of meaning construction in terms of like narrative and like how it's structured and in terms of that kind of thing or is it more not that something else it's more literal than that mm. it's not it's not you know like the narrative structure is not f totally traditional in that it is kind of the separate narrative stories thing but beyond that it's pretty straightforward within any given story at least what i've read so far I, i'm about two-thirds of the way through the book so i can only speak to that um, Nate is nodding his head though, as I, <laughs> as yeah. I say yeah. this, um, whereas it's more, it's more actually like in the fiction itself. It's more like the science fiction is about semiosis. Yeah. Ah. Like that's so that, the that, science fictional element to it. Cool. So that reminds me of Embassy Town by China Mievel. Um, oh uh, yeah. Uh, there's some elements of that for sure. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. What were you going to say, Nate? Oh, that old oh, Embassy Town is another one that I have not read, but, uh, I was going to say that, uh, without getting too spoilery i think the 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 logistics of communicating with uh you know you already said it was a first contact story um and so mm -hmm. i think the concept of semiosis comes up through that right right and in that way it actually kind of reminds me of like the word for world is forest or some of these other books maybe honestly even kind of like you know it's orson scott card but that the the like um sequels to ender's game um, where Xenocide, Zenocide mm -hmm. and Speaker for the Dead in particular Speaker is what I'm dead. thinking of where it's like, oh, yeah, Speaker oh for the these dead, very yeah. alien aliens that are so alien we don't actually recognize them for what they are. Yeah, that just to just to finish the thought on Embassy Town, that's very much that book is about um, people. It's about trying to communicate with something mm -hmm. that communicates in a way that is so fundamentally different from how you do that the project of just literally trying to be understood and understanding what it would mean to be understood is is yeah. itself fraught. Um, 
we don't need to talk too much about any one of these books. Embassy right. Town in particular could be a long discussion. I think yeah. Adrian is, Adrian is about like to go book. off. <laughs> I did not like that book. As someone who studied linguistics, I had a big problem with the way it handled oh, linguistics. Um, it was so funny watching you. I was like saying, and you, you're, you were just like, it was like watching the fuse go down on a bomb. Like, <laughs> it's like, I'm going to speak up here. <laughs> Would you be comfortable? I, I, know, you, I know you like, uh, or if, if I remember correctly, you liked uh, Annihilation, that whole series. Yeah, um, would you, I really like the first book. There's some some overlap thematically. This is less dreamy. I can see and, that. And, uh, but I think, uh, you uh, know, we, we were talking about this earlier. Maybe the number one thing that, that this description reminds me of is the Chris Beckett series, the Eden books, Dark Eden, yeah. um, Mother of Eden, Daughter of Eden. Have you read or those, is, Nate? No, uh, you recommended uh, at some point to me. So oh, dude, you yeah. will love them. You would, you, you would that, really that, love them. That's the one that's about a planet that's like a rogue planet. Does yes. it take place on a rogue? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it takes place on a rogue planet without a sun, and it's very much about like, you know, essentially a group of humans crash lands there and like manages to build a society, even though it's very, very few people. And it's set over the course of like multiple generations. The different books take place okay. in different generations, and them like at different points of like, kind of like at different, um, like break points or different crossroads in society where it's like this big event kind of like determines which direction the society goes in. And it's about the people like involved in those historical events on this planet. It's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Really cool. They're amazing. Adrian and I both really love them. I think All it's right. fair to say. I'll, yeah. I'll, yeah. Uh, shift him up the queue. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 neat. I also I've liked some of his other books, too, um, but I think those three. It's also the third book in that series is the best finale to a trilogy I've ever read. I can't ah. say why without major spoilers and stuff, but like, holy shit, it's worth the second book is not. It's fine, but it's just OK. But it's like worth getting through all three of them because like, holy shit, the way it ends is amazing. Cool. Um, yeah, so I think to to go back to the book facts and this, the the other thing actually that's worth mentioning. So we normally read standalone novels for this podcast. Um, this is the first in a do planned duology, and in fact, the second book is going to be published yes. in like four <laughs> or five months or something like. Like the second book is written and is going to be published soon. Um, from my understanding, Nate, uh, this book does totally work as a standalone novel, though. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, like you've already talked about, uh, skipping generations, each chapter makes it so you can really just take a cross-section of this whole timeline, you know, that the, mm -hmm. the story takes place in. And you're, uh, each chapter is kind of kind of self-contained and wrapped up in that way. And there, yeah. there is this story running through it, but uh, at least I, I, I would have been perfectly fine with no sequel, um, although I'm happy to read a sequel. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think I think it works. Cool. That's good. And that's hopefully useful for, you know, readers wondering if they're getting into a series or not. It's like it's up to you if you're getting into a series or not. And it sounds like it's just the two. It's not like the first in a long series. It sounds like she has two books planned and that's it. And then she'll move on to the next thing. Um, it's going to be it's going to be the Cosmere. No, this is actually part of the Cosmere. <laughs> this is actually. Do you do you guys? Any, well, no, I'll, I don't know. I'll, that, that, I'll that just leave that one out head. there. Then. <laughs> way over my head. Sorry, Matt. I'm, I'll just leave that one out there. It's a Brandon Sanderson reference. Oh, okay. Well, I'll anyway. hold, bite my tongue there too. So I think we should also talk about uh, Burke Sue Burke a little bit. She's the author of this. This is her first, I think, um, her first novel, her first published novel that she's written alone. 
Uh, she's a translator, though, and she's translated a bunch of novels from Spanish into English, um, particularly a lot of like fantasy and sci-fi novels and that kind of thing is what it looked like, like reading it, particularly a lot of like historical and fantasy novels. Um, I kind of like went through and looked and saw what I could about the stuff yeah. I saw her name but, on. But Adrian, translation is such a mechanical and uncreative task. Why would you even bring that up in the context <laughs> of... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. I never said that. I'm not. A, I know it sounds like I'm accusing Adrian of saying that. That's not really what I meant. It was main. It was meant to be uh, that that sort of you know undirected insouciance that uh, that, right. that uh, gives me such jollies. No, she's a writer. She's a journalist. Um, she's worked as a journalist for a long time. She's worked as a translator. She writes I- stories, novels, and poetry. Yeah, Nate. I, w- I would say that being a, a translator also uh, gives her a, a unique authority in writing the perspectives of some of these characters. So that, yeah. that's important. Yeah. For the record, I think the opposite of what I said about translation. Sorry, it occurs to me. I, do, <laughs> I should be I should be very uh, direct. <laughs> I I think translation is a beautiful art. Um, I think that. Uh, uh, <laughs> that also know. said. I know that's not sarcastic, but that also said it's, it's not. <laughs> I know, I know, it's not. Uh, uh, it's <laughs> I mean, not. We've talked about your friend, um, you know, Austin Weiner, Werner, um, who Werner, translates, yeah. and you know, yeah, it's some it, of my best friends are translators. <laughs> <laughs> I sincerely p- apologize for anyone who was offended by my previous statements. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is it, that Nate. That's like a great point. That, like I was saying, like the the science fictional elements of the book is kind of translation. Like that's one of the sciences that like, you know, science air quote, but that's one of the things that the book is like interested in, in the actual text, like in the actual fiction of the book. Very interesting. I'm really looking forward to that bit. I, uh, I actually, I mean, you know, I was making the joke mainly because I think translation is super interesting and cool. Like I've actually done some myself. It's really, um, it's the locus of a lot of different interesting things simultaneously. It's, um, you know, involves a lot of skills and also artistic um, intent. But it's also, you know, this philosophically fascinating thing where we're talking about mm-hmm. very, very deep perspectives and very, very complicated, layered um, ways of interacting with the same object, you know. There, there, there's so many different aspects to it that it becomes this very loaded signifier in and of itself. Translation does. I mean, um, I think a lot of. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of postmodern authors are interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think. I think like a subject like semiosis is something that lends itself naturally to a discussion of translation and translating. Right. Um, but anyway, that we can maybe leave that until the post read or I, I'm really basically I'm really interested to see how this goes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we have to leave a lot of the like, you know, philosophy of mind, translation, language stuff to the post read just because, you know, it's like even so much as we will have some spoilers like that would just totally ruin the <laughs> novel, um, even for me. And I'm like pro spoiler. <laughs> um, but I do Gasp. think that that stuff is going to I mean, that's probably most of what we're going to talk about in the post read, I would imagine. Cool. like that and ecology because I, i'd say like one of the things the book's really interested in is the the like intersection of ecology and translation the intersection of like ecology mm-hmm. and sort of like natural processes and then like you know language and symbols and like mental processes mm-hmm. um nate i see you nodding uh, you should yeah no i really i really look forward to those conversations i i hope uh 
I hope scheduling works out so that I can come back for the post read. I, I hope so. Oh, yeah, we'll, really, we'll make uh, that work out. Okay, cool. There's also, I yeah. know there's a little bit of a delay because you're in Alaska, but feel free to like interrupt us and start talking Absolutely. and we'll, we'll shut up and, you know, right. I can edit it to make it sound good <laughs> in post. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to be sounding a lot better than this once the final <laughs> pod comes out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so I think. Um, you know, at this stage, we've gotten through most of the... What have we gotten through, Matt? <laughs> <We've>, <laughs> Would it be the book facts? Is we've that gotten what we've, through we've, most of the book facts. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, that was really funny to me. Um, so I think what, like one of the things I know that um, you guys want to talk about and I wanted to ask you about is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big uh, themes of this book is constructing civilization um, or constructing kind of like human-oriented civilization society at least yeah in a in a hostile or indifferent climate and uh, that's something both of you guys are interested in but also it really (laughs) jives with your frontiersman alaskan (laughs) right it hit uh, home a little bit for me reading it at least (laughs) i don't know i'll i'll say something really quickly and then i want to get nate's uh thoughts on it which is just like you know, I've only read, like I said, about two thirds of it so far, but definitely I've almost noticed at times having to, um, I like at times I get really into it because of the survival and I'm like, oh, this reminds me of growing up. And then at other times, like, oh, I need to take a break a little bit from it because it reminds me of growing up. Oh, wow. That is really interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. Nate, I'm curious how your experience of reading the novel was. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I pretty much read straight through it. I don't think I, I took any breaks, but I, I, um, I guess I, I enjoy the, I mean, clearly I, mo- I moved back up here, so I kind of enjoy the, <laughs> the like, you know, frontier uh, uh, lifestyle, although I am spending most of my time on the computer, I, you know, still go out and chop wood or whatever in between. So you uh, mean to tell me you yeah. moved back to Alaska to make video games yeah, on yeah. computer? It, it, it makes, it makes perfect sense, right? No, uh, um... I don't know. We we have like a um, this big greenhouse uh, hoop house high tunnel thing. We do a lot of gardening in the in the summer, and we're not like living a subsistence lifestyle or anything like that. But I think there was a there was a fair amount of overlap with uh, sort of the the value set up here, and uh, mm-hmm. you know colonizing another another planet. Um, well, yeah. I mean, so one of the interesting things for me, I've been to Alaska only once. I went uh, with Adrian and I visited Homer, and uh, which is where you guys grew up, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that struck me was how, I mean, a lot of stuff that seems to be normal up there is very much not normal <laughs> in the lower 48. A lot of the the level of danger that people accept in their lives, for one thing, the level, the, the sort of the, 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 the thinness of the film that separates you from just a completely uncaring, vast like empire of nature um is really astonishing to me i mean like the number of different ways you can die like on a given day <laughs> blows my mind yeah um, I, I mean I, I will say that my uh my dad uh breaks more ribs than any man his age should uh routinely <laughs> just 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 to wa- walking to and from his uh, his job he slips on the so ice wild. and stuff like that <laughs> oh, so wild, bro- like- broken another rib <laughs> <laughs> but that is totally something that that is totally something that people in the lower 48 do not unless you live um a pretty 
wild existence on a ranch, you know, somewhere, or mm -hmm. unless you're pretty off grid, I think in the lower 48, that's generally not how people live. Right. You don't, you're not dealing with that kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. Even so, in the more rural area, I, you know, Alaska, I think is, it's like the civilized, you know, I, I kind of hate the word civilization, but particularly the like kind of like Western society parts of Alaska, like you said, do feel like a thin film sometimes. It's like, a, you know, a thin and porous film, um, one where yeah. it's really easy. You know, I was I forget what context it was. In, but the other day I was, you know, mentioning like, oh, yeah, as a kid, I would just like run around barefoot in the woods mm -hmm. all the time. And people are like, wait what barefoot it's like oh yeah you know it's kind of a wild child like that was normal yeah. you build up all these like calluses on your feet so you can yeah 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 absolutely and like we um uh some of my my dad and and um mom both ran this uh photography camp for photographing brown bears so like in the summer we would go over to this camp across the inlet from homer so like there's you know homer's rural by some standards and then there's uh if you fly i would say it is rural yeah yeah, yeah. no no totally is rural. But you, but, you but also you fly... went across the bay where it's like there's not anything right we yeah were kayaking nothing and stuff. yeah yeah or like we've you know we've done i think it sounds like adrian you've done this too but like you know rafting trips and things like that in the past where mm -hmm. you're you know literally like hundreds of miles from anything like yeah even close to civilized. So if you like, if you break your leg in that sort of situation, it's just like, well, you're fucked. Like yeah. there, there's not like, there's not <laughs> yeah. like a option. Homer has a hospital at least. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're pretty close to the hospital really. Yeah. Um, but, but I think, I think there is, uh, I, I, I find, uh, colony stories really appealing for that reason. I think a lot of the, uh, you know, probably because it allows me to like live some of the same, uh, you know, myths that I've been embracing about, about this lifestyle too. Like the re the reason, we like it here or find it romantic here is because of the, uh, because of all those, um, you know, that, that ideal that like the rugged frontier ideal. And so even, even though I live in this environment, I think I like to consume that kind of media. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, yeah. It, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You were going to, you were going to say, Oh, I was just going to, you know, add to that. Like it can be fun to consume that kind of, like I've mentioned this before on the podcast. One thing I really like watching is like, prepper and bushcraft youtube um, oh it's so it's i i find that very appealing right also. and like some of it is just the like oh it's cool watching the ingenuity that these people have without having to experience all the shitty parts of it because right. like listen there's a lot of shitty parts i mean again like matt when you were there like we went hiking across the bay from homer where it's like much more rural <laughs> and like one of the things about that is there are just fucking <laughs> bugs everywhere i knew this was like, gonna come up like bugs to the point that you're walking around and your skin is just bleeding because your capillaries are being broken by like the like gnats and mosquitoes yeah um it's wild you know and it's like that's the stuff that like you know you don't show on the youtube compilation and it's mm -hmm. nice to be able to like be like oh this is the fun like you know ingenuity human element parts without the like ah. Uh, and then you have to like, you know, walk for 18 miles in the cold yeah. and you're wet yeah, and it's buggy. And was that a bear or was that a moose? I can't tell. <laughs> I think one of the weirdest things for me uh, is a thing that in the first 10 pages of this book, I've already begun to experience in the book, which is the idea that, you know, you're out there in this environment and you know, it's dangerous in some abstract sense. But the big problem that you have is that you don't really know anything. 
You know, you're looking around mm-hmm. and like you don't know what the stuff that you're seeing means. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. not engaged in the semiotic process yet. You haven't had time to. You don't know the 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 significance of any of the things that you're looking at. Somebody like Adrian, perhaps, or you, Nate, if you grew up in the place, you know, when I was in Alaska looking around in the woods, like I just didn't I just saw, you know, it was like it was colors it was and shapes. Trees. <laughs> yeah. Tree. Do you, Rock. Do you feel like, uh, neutral toward things in that case, or do you feel kind of like a, a default to, to fear if there's like bushes you, and you don't know what's in them? No, I, I I do not feel fear. My struggle is to force myself to feel the appropriate fear because right. like I think that the, the natural thing is to be very complacent. I would think, especially right. when you are currently at you know well fed and and just standing in the a dry spot. You know, what you have to do is recognize. It is like try to educate yourself somehow, which mm-hmm. is hard and painful, mm-hmm. before you die. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to like learn enough quickly enough, you know, that you can not die while constantly being threatened with death. Like if you pick up the wrong rock, like literally this was how I felt when I was there. Like for all I know, if I pick up a rock that looks like that rock, then I'll get killed by something. <laughs> something, something will get you. Bad, like, yeah. just to give you an example, we were driving from Anchorage to Homer, right? And it's the middle <laughs> of the fucking night and everybody's super jet lagged. And we just ran into an owl. Like, the, they, we were just driving and like, the car did not swerve. Like, we were not swerving off road. No. Nobody was, like, it, the car was driving normally. We're in the middle of a long straightaway. There's no other cars around. And then, wham! Like, right. a fucking owl <laughs> hit the well, windshield. Well, at least well, it wasn't well, a news. <laughs> Yeah, well, what happened was there was another, it was, you know, we're driving, it's late at night, but like the moon's up and it's, you know, Alaska. So it's also, everything's very visible. Uh And um, because it was summer. summer. Right. And so it's like, you know, there's where we live in Homer, this might be worth mentioning, like the sun isn't up all the time, but also in the like height of summer, we were there over solstice. It doesn't get more than like twilight. Yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of dusk for like five hours and that's what night is. Um but uh, what happened was it was the first car coming at me because I was driving that I had seen in like an hour. And then also this owl just swooped down like directly at the car. And I remember saying, whoa, hold on. <laughs> because the owl it was just like I couldn't swerve. Like it was like I had time to swerve, but I was going to hit the owl, not a car. Um, we did run into a moose later that luckily I had time to like slow down and stop because there was a moose like, you know, just hanging out in the middle of the highway way yeah but but it's just like from my perspective that's what it felt like it felt like at any moment some ridiculous (laughs) fucking thing is gonna happen that i could not predict or explain like an owl that literally had a wingspan bigger than the truck we were driving yeah it's not a pygmy you know twitter cute owl i mean it was probably cute i didn't see it alive but like (laughs) it it was like a monster it was like this gigantic dire beast yeah just for the record, too, that was the only time I've ever hit a bird in my life driving. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. Well, as I remember it, it more hit us than we hit it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was the instigator. Yeah. <laughs> I did not feel good about that. <laughs> but, no, every, every time I, know, every time I, I have friends that come up here and, and hang out, they, they uh, comment on the fact that we're just accustomed to these, like, giant prehistoric creatures roaming around, like a... Uh, uh, you know, the moose, like you can see a picture of them and that's one thing, but like, they're so much bigger than a deer. Uh, I think people don't quite appreciate that until you're, you mm-hmm. meet them in person. But like, mm-hmm. like we, we hit one with a car coming back from work, oh, Jesus. Uh, my, my wife and I once and it, uh, we, you know, had time to slam on the brakes. So like by the time we hit the moose, we were only going, I don't know, like 10 or 15 miles an hour. And it, it, uh, 
tipped up onto the windshield and smashed the entire windshield. Um, not, wow. you know, not like we didn't get showered in glass, but it like smashed it in. Um, it was still hanging in there all fractured, but then, um, the moose just got up and ran away and we didn't even, you know, like we called it in, but there's not like, it didn't die from that encounter. I feel like this, the car sustained more damage than the, than the moose did. So. Wow. Well, and this is the thing I think people don't realize about like moose in particular. Like I would recommend not Googling like moose car accident because the thing with moose is that their legs, they weigh like as much as a car does, but their legs weigh almost none of that. So all of yeah. that weight is at the height of like the you know the windshield etc so what will happen if you hit a moose at full speed is you will keep going and the car Mm -hmm. will keep going but they will just take the whole top of the car off which includes the people in the car yeah it's crazy it's like a a moose like running into a moose is incredibly dangerous and it kills people because it like the moose shears them in half essentially yeah, it's that nuts. is absolutely insane. See, this, is, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. That is like I knew like hitting a moose would be bad. Right. But like what you've described is such a horrific and like insane way to die. Like, like, yeah, like and the moose. Like, I mean, to Nate's point, like the, in that bad of an accident, the moose will also die usually. Yeah, but yeah, often yeah. like by being put down after the fact right like the moose the moose is more resilient than the car is and weighs as much as the car does um it's i mean you know to your point you know to this point of like you know seeing the world and understanding it was actually something i remember very distinctly when i took you matt and like the other guys um and woman with us to alaska was the sense of like while we were hiking around, like everything had meaning to me in this way that I had like forgotten that like the world around me could have meaning because I do a fair amount of hiking out here in the like New York Hudson River Valley area and Connecticut when I lived there. You know, I've gone hiking in like Australia and South America and Europe and all these different places. And like there, there is this sense of like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Whereas going back home and hiking, it was like, information like signs Mm -hmm. and symbols like everywhere it felt like the like the final scene of the matrix when he sees the code (laughs) right it like weirdly (laughs) felt like that of like oh i can see what everything means Mm -hmm. like like, what what different different plants are and whether they're edible like where they are in their cycle and all that to like oh don't touch that plant but if you need food you can eat it (laughs) you know like yeah 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 meanwhile like you know i think for 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 me you know it's uh, i'm like walking around and like literally trying to go to the bathroom like (laughs) i've gone hiking in random places and not experienced this because probably probably because you know the random places i've gone hiking are these like incredibly are like unbeknownst to like a suburbanite are incredibly manicured and well cared (laughs) for you know like toy forests but you know, uh, trying to go to the bathroom in a, in like buggy, muggy, <laughs> wet mountains in Alaska in the summer, like I didn't I didn't know it was possible to bleed from some of these places without <laughs> first being like stabbed by like a really weird criminal. Like it was awful. It was, it was like, and it was so unexpected. It was so. I, I, I like thinking of mosquitoes and horseflies as really weird criminals. <laughs> God, yeah. yeah yeah that is the other thing people say like the mosquitoes in alaska are bigger and like they are 
They're <laughs> huge and scary and terrifying. <laughs> All of this is to say that, you know, in the first few pages of Semiosis, <laughs> because it turns out this is a book podcast. In the first few pages of in the first few pages of Semiosis, I really identified with the with the characters who are who are, you know, in this very alien environment. They're looking around and I think they are feeling like I'll I'll say this, you know, in the in like page three or something, they're they're walking around this environment. And we don't, the readers, we the readers don't even know what's going on, but they're, the characters are walking around in this environment. They're looking at various objects and they're wondering what they are and what they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're thinking to themselves, I guess only time will tell mm-hmm. what this thing grows up into or what that eats. Or, yeah. And that is exactly how I feel um, in the woods. And in particular, it's how I felt in Alaska because Alaska was way more real as far as woods yeah. go. Well, that's how I felt in Australia, too, because Australia, when I was hiking out there, I was hiking alone. I was like there for work and was like, oh, I'll go on a day hike. Um, And so I just took the train up to Kentuba and like hiked around. And there was this weird thing of one, you go through different biomes really quickly because the mountains there are actually like a really ancient like canyon riverbed that has been like so dug out that it looks like mountains instead of like valleys. Um, So you like walk through these different biomes really quickly. And then two, in Australia, just as much as in Alaska, literally everything is there to kill you. Like everything is poisonous. In Alaska, nothing's poisonous. It's all like mean and big and has teeth. And (laughs) like, I definitely felt the thing of like, I remember distinctly walking around and finding this beautiful flower that had silk all over it. And living inside of the flower was this like giant, um, like not tarantula, but really big spider. And it was gorgeous. It was this like beautiful thing of like a spider living inside of a flower. But then also I'm looking at it. I'm like, I have no idea if this thing can jump. I have no idea if this thing is (laughs) deadly poisonous, if it's poisonous. Like, like I assume it's poisonous because it's, Australia. I'm, I'm, I'm basically just imagining the flower that, that you encountered is the uh, you know the H.R. Giger alien egg. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking. Like, I was thinking of. Like. Uh, I was thinking of Children of Time, but uh... right. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but like, I I wonder. I'll see if I can find that because I took some photos of this thing. I'll see if I can find them on my old iPhone. Um, but it was. I remember like like that was this experience of like oh shit this is both beautiful and this really cool ecology and like you know the like what combination of evolution and learning and whatnot went into like a literally this like cup like flower that a spider lives inside of yeah and then also being like i have no fucking clue if i should be within like three feet of this thing right maybe the correct response to this is not to be looking at it in awe but to be running (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i think uh one one thing in in the context of this book one thing that's really uh important to point out point out is like how many generations it takes to accumulate knowledge about a complex mm. environment like that whether it's the rainforest or, or alaska mm. or you know wherever mm. and, and then and then how hard it can be to uh retain that knowledge across generations mm. depending on what happens without without spoiling y- shit. Yeah, yeah i mean i think of i think all the time about the british navy uh, uh lemons thing lemons and limes thing like the 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 knowledge of how to the, the knowledge of the very easy ways to fight against the outbreak of scurvy among your your men in a ship was somehow lost mm-hmm. um, oh. in the 19th century um, before it was refound again. You know, for hundreds of That's years, you know, s- sailors, the, the world, the, the, all Europe over knew to eat um, citrus fruits occasionally. Um, 
And like somehow they stopped doing that. And like for a variety of reasons, some bureaucratic, some political, some incidental. Right. The knowledge well, of what. Yeah. And talking about like semiosis here, I mean, this is the really interesting thing that happens when like knowledge gets encodified into tradition, where all of a sudden it's like it's less about like we know that this does, you know, we take these actions for this reason because it does this thing. And we're like, we take these actions because they're important. Mm-hmm. it's really easy mm-hmm. then to be like well why is it important i don't know i'll yeah. throw it away and then yeah. like and then, maybe then you throw away something important <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? well i wanted to ask you guys both you know growing up in an environment like that how was it that you were taught about your environment yeah and how did you feel like you learned about it i mean what i assume i mean i don't know i guess i'll ask you like when you were little did you feel the same way about it that you do now yeah uh, well, i mean nate well yeah i mean I'll just like both of our dads are really into naturalism. Yeah. In different ways. But like maybe Nate, you want to talk about this a little bit. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, so my, my dad had uh, his job was um, basically doing natural history guiding uh, for people. He started he was a moose oh, hunter cool. guide for a while. And then he was also just a, a photography guide after that. And uh, so. I think that was part of his like main, you know, childhood curriculum for me. Like, for example, I mm-hmm. I didn't know how to tie my my shoes when I went to school, but I did know which plants I could eat or not eat, uh, uh, you know, on the playground at recess. And so, like, uh, he deprioritized things that uh, you know would have been adaptive living in civilization and uh, prioritized other things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very much like my dad you know never had quite the job that nate's dad did but like moved up to alaska to like have adventures in the wilderness and then like you know essentially had kids to be like friends who he could have adventures in the wilderness <laughs> with and i was the first of those um and the prototype. so get, yeah get all the and, experiments. you know and you know i then then i became like the you know like weird bookish kid so that worked out really well for everyone but you know we we cautionary tale for fathers everywhere yeah, yeah. for real <laughs> um but, but it was the same thing of like i just grew up both with him and my mom i mean to be fair like my mom we gardened and we you know like my mom was really into gardening and we we you know it wasn't subsistence and that that was all we ate but it was subsistence and the like it was important to our diets because we grew up like in poverty and so gardening was one way of like having potatoes mm-hmm. all winter long and having like enough calories all winter long and um we you know so like i had that from a very young age i had like going out with my dad on the snow machine or even just like traipsing around in the woods because we had like you know five acres which like one of which would the house is on and the other four acres were just like wooded wilderness mm-hmm. um that we grew up on and so you know we'd walk around and he showed me stuff and he'd talk about it and i you know same i knew like you know fiddlehead ferns are good at this time of year and not good at that time of year mm-hmm. like you can eat you know dandelions when they're babies but not as they grow up into flower you know and like mm-hmm. all this kind of nettles. stuff of like you know yeah nettles you know again stuff that's like don't touch them but if you need food they're food weirdly enough you can boil it and then it, then it's edible but yeah. right or there's like um there's multiple kinds of plants that either have thorns or uh, you know pushki is a cow parsnip is what it's called in a lot of the u.s where it's a um invasive species that has um these hairs that a resin grows out of the hairs on the underside of the leaves of and if you get the resin on your skin and then the skin is 
put in UV light, aka sunlight, aka like what is all around Alaska all the time in the summer because the sun barely sets, uh, you'll get like third degree chemical burns almost instantly. And Some like people... it'll, it'll flake off your skin. Yeah, and you will have exactly scars what I'm for years. That's about. another thing you should definitely this is not exactly do. Exactly what I'm fucking talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You will grow these like giant pu- like and the thing is it's like you're you're burning and you don't know why. Because you have this like yeah. thin resin on your skin and I, you, you know, you'll get scars for like I had scars on my chest for like six or seven years from like a Pushki encounter. I have I have one friend here who had a reaction that was so bad to it that now pretty consistently if he goes out in the sun and sweats again, yeah. he will he will get burns even now. I don't that know is how so that's insane. possible. But, right. That is right. so insane. Is yeah. it any wonder that people had all kinds of, you know belief sets about yeah. I mean, the natural sense, world right? like how could you possibly make sense of that without the infrastructure of our our like ideological commitments that we that we have like right you're walking around and all of a sudden you're burning <laughs> <laughs> and you'll just keep burning forever now that's <laughs> gonna well, be that's, how that's it is face. yeah yeah it's true it's like i wouldn't have the scars in the winter and then in the summer as soon as i tanned like the scars would show up again and it's like these phantom fucking scars these <laughs> what absolute madness so did you but but did you feel differently about it when you were little compared to how you feel about it now like was it more exciting was it less exciting was it scarier was it uh, more normal and now it's, it's just what like, it was it just was yeah i didn't know anything else i mean nate maybe you can talk but i didn't know any other thing yeah it's what what i knew of the world i, I think i was um, more excited about it. Uh, so, okay. Uh, <laughs> over the course of playing a lot of video games and thinking about video games continuously, now I do mm-hmm. this thing where when I encounter something in the natural world, my instinct is to like, how can I like turn that into a concept and then assimilate it into this creative thing that I want to control? When I was a kid, I would just like play with it. And so I think, mm-hmm. as, I think I was more excited to like engage with things as a kid. Now I just want to like take it and use it so that reminds me of a story actually so um shigeru miyamoto the creator of many iconic video game characters including mario and and zelda etc um grew up in a certain area in the kansai region of japan and one of his calling cards as a designer of video games is to represent the natural world and to try to recapture the feeling of being a child exploring Mm -hmm. the natural world and what i have heard um from people who have been there is that if you wander around the woods near the house where he grew up, you will have the bizarre experience of feeling like you are in a number of different video games simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) Because that very, very specific environment has somehow imprinted itself on a lot of the most successful and powerful pieces of video game art (laughs) that have ever been made. Isn't that wild? Yeah, (laughs) phenomenal. I love that. (laughs) Semiosis, man. Word. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, that's wild. I mean, going back to that, like, you know, the question of that a little bit, like, you know, one of the interesting things is now having, I mean, I live in New York City and I, you know, like, so for me, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but like, to me, the like reason I got into sci-fi as a kid was because like, now Alaska is fun and even talking about 
my childhood is like fun in a way but the one like it wasn't actually growing up in it particularly for me like I don't want to say forever I know people who had great experiences but like you know a combination of like dealing with like a lot of like depression and like self-worth issues as a kid combined with just like the fact of like living in poverty like it wasn't for us just living in a you know rural environment like it was that plus this thing of like you know having food insecurity and like not knowing where money was going to come from and even housing insecurity at times that like you know led to this feeling of like yeah I mean of general insecurity like Mm -hmm. it like growing up knowing like anything could kill you and that you do live on a thin (laughs) porous veneer of civilization is like actually not great for your psyche as an adult (laughs) I think there's, there's a reason we both got into Lovecraft in high school. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. It was an uh, escape, yeah. a happier world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, a little bit, uh, or at least a way of putting like metaphor to our experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the indifferent nature. Uh, yeah. It, well, the, and, the and, idea that there are these like horrible, you know, dark old ones like just behind the the door is like a comfort um compared to <laughs> compared to a world where you're walking around outside and all of a sudden you have third degree chemical burn <laughs> and an owl hits you <laughs> what yeah well and i think you know i i don't maybe like it's it's also it's a weird and like science fiction and horror both for me were this sense of like, you know, like it's not just a comfort, but also a way of making sense of the world as well as especially with science fiction, a way of like escaping into like civilization. Like Again, I kind of hate the word civilization, but it's the easiest word to use here. We're like where we grew up, like had certain aspects of civilization, but especially like, you know, I say I grew up in Homer. I was 15 miles out of Homer. Nate was Mm -hmm. 10 miles or so out of Homer. Like we grew up really far out, like into the woods and it, you know, is, like being able to read about like spaceships and like, you know, cities of billions of people and, you know, fucking just like whatever it w- was like comforting and escapist too. It was the sense of yeah, like, Oh, definitely. that's how I learned about civilization was learning about like what people thought future civilization would be <laughs> in like the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you yeah. know, roughly translates. Got yeah. some overlap at least. <laughs> I mean, especially like the cyberpunk shit, like New York feels like <laughs> yeah. living in one of those areas in one of those books sometimes. So yeah, hey, it worked out. <laughs> well, one thing uh, without again, I you know, I guess you can you can edit this out if it's too spoilery, but uh, uh, something. Our, both of our parents, our, our dads, moved up from like I don't know. My mm-hmm. dad grew up in Ohio or something. I don't know where. Yeah, my dad was up, Michigan. But, yeah. And so so they had this like sort of set of uh, cultural expectations and, you know, th- their own uh, understanding of how the world worked. And then they chose to come to this sort yeah. of frontier environment. And then and there's a similar thing that goes on with the characters in the story where like the first generation that arrives brings a lot of baggage with them from yep. the old world. And then that has an impact on the following generation and I, without getting too uh, too spoilery or too personal. I think that th- that would be an interesting conversation to have maybe in the next. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. actually, at re- even right now, you could say a word about the um, the Orthodox communities near Homer because that's something that I think, as a person who didn't grow up anywhere near anything like that, is kind of a an odd. Oh, the old believers. The old yeah. believers. Yeah. Yeah. You you want to say the word? You lived closer than I did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the thing about the so uh, all like the history of it is there are these like. Um, 
these Russian Orthodox religious sect that was like a splinter sect, I think in like the 1600s, give or take where, um, you know, like the church modernized in certain ways and they did not want to modernize within the church. Um, they were like persecuted for a long time in Russia. And then actually after Alaska became an American territory, a lot of them moved to the States, um, including to Alaska and um, we lived next to one of these kind of settlements and, and they're, you know, very interesting in that they're, you know, these like Russian Orthodox people who wear like traditional like, you know, silk blouses, the men do, and they all speak Russian to each other. They have their own schools. They have their own like society entirely. That's like entirely apart for the most part. I mean, like they still have to like engage in the economy. So like the men work in town sometimes and blah, blah, blah. But like largely it's a society entirely apart from the rest of like Western Alaska. Um, and also obviously apart from like native Alaska society, which is itself a whole other thing, um, which I had very little experience with due to, due to the areas that that takes place in. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to it's like so I could go down this rabbit hole that's so deep of like, the like, you know, like these people living there and how they do. But, I, you know, I feel like a lot of Alaska is people, especially Western white people, Americans, Russians, it's, you know, whatever, whatever, however you want to like call that kind of group of like non indigenous Alaskan people. Um, there's this idea of what Alaska is before they go there. And there's an there's a sense of like wanting wilderness and wanting being away from civilization or being away from society down to like, you know, I mean, there's the joke of like, you know, oh, you know, like criminals move up to Alaska to escape the law. Like that is true. One of my <laughs> best friends growing up was this like 30 year old guy who had like escaped to Alaska to escape like a, f a felony conviction like that. That's that those people live there. People I had. I knew this guy who, again, I don't want to, like, give, because he's very, you know, important <laughs> about the, like, who, like, moved to Alaska, got rid of his social security number, like, changed yeah. his name and, like, lived off the land and, like, you know, essentially, like, grew pot and sold it and, like, had it, like, stockpiled guns and, like, would go around <laughs> town telling people, like, to beware of aliens. And that was my, his, uh, like, M.O. My, my mom always, she said that the uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses found her property here before the tax people did. Amazing. Dude, I mean, I, I suppose you could go on and on about, you know, the, the ways in which this very real environment, uh, you know, uh, has these attributes that we, that we can see in this book, or, or at least like, you put it this way, the book is going to be investigating a lot of these things that you're talking about that are real, that are not, you know, I think there's a tendency people who live in the lower 48 and any urban or suburban part of North America to think of, um, to think of the settling of an unspoiled continent as like ancient history that is long mm -hmm. over when in fact, of course, it's consequences are ever present. It's, ongoing you know and it's also worth interrogating what unspoiled means yeah, of course right like this is maybe less true in alaska but like you know we 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 anyone who has read 1491 by charles mann knows that like what we thought of like wilderness in america was actually the like result of an apocalypse that had like you know a civilization had fallen and like all the animals had run free and like you know 
the ecology was all out of whack because they weren't managing it anymore. Um, and that's less true in Alaska just because the ecology was less managed and there were less people there than in the lower 48 areas. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, there's this idea of wilderness and there's this idea of like Alaska's unclaimed territory. Then there's the reality of, Alaska is like the second least white state in the nation because of all the native people who still live there. Mm-hmm. And that, that applies to semiosis as well. There's uh, there's local, they can't just, they yep. can't just set up shop and bring their, their uh, un- utopian <laughs> vision there without uh, having to interface with what's already there. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. it's wilderness, but Oh, there's people and they have a very yeah. different way of existing. And it's not, yeah. And and you can't ever start over clean. That's not only because you bring things with you, but because, of course, there's no such thing as a place that's clean to start. Yeah, right, right, right. And so, you know, I think a lot of this stuff will come out more in the post. I I, I always hate being like, oh, we can talk about it more later. But like the specifics (laughs) of the book will be interesting. One thing I did think, and Nate, I'm curious your take on this, like as we're having this conversation, I'm realizing um, not everyone who writes post-apocalyptic fiction does a very good job of like getting what it's actually like to live in the wilderness. Uh, surprisingly, Sue Burke actually, fe- it feels like she does a very, like she gets these kind of like innate things, even though, you know, she lived in like what, like, you know, Arkansas and Texas and, you know, like not totally uncivilized, Spain, like not uncivilized places, you know? And so um, I'm actually like just through this conversation, realizing how impressive the book is and getting a lot of this stuff right. Yeah. Well, and I I guess I'd need to, you know, I would like to hear more from her about what her specific background is within those places too. Cause like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's large yeah. You can find land in Texas where you're pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty isolated. isolated. I, I, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't looked into her her backgrounds exactly, so I don't really know. But uh, but I do, I do feel like she she makes it feel pretty authentic in a way. And I, I think I think part of that is with again without I don't know this, this is a little weird doing the pre read thing, but but she she writes at this level of detachment because yeah. of because of how it's structured um, that I think allows her to sort of uh, imply details that give it a sense of authenticity without actually like dwelling in them. Yeah. If that makes sense. And, and a lot of, uh, post-apocalyptic, uh, fiction that I've read is very much like, uh, you're, you're in it with the person. And, and so if the details don't work, uh, then it loses that sense of authenticity, but she's kind of, uh, moving at a, she's at a high enough elevation and moving fast enough through it that she can kind of, uh, get away with that that's a good point it's not a novel that's like dwelling in the like specific details of survivalism it's not like a right. prepper novel which right you know i but, enjoy but she, those but it's but not she does that. she does uh put enough time in like enough energy into that that uh that you f- you you buy into her authority mm-hmm. talking about it so mm-hmm. she's like yeah like they've thought about this they're dealing with all this there's huge huge amounts of things that they're dealing with that we're not going to right there's also a few key like kind of science fictional hand wavy elements that again don't want to get too deep into that kind of like help with that that help with some of the survivalism of it and like how they're able to in the ways they do which is you know it's kind of nice like sometimes it's like yeah we just need to like hand wave this stuff so we can get to the interesting parts and the interesting parts is like the culture it's actually the interesting parts are society and like how does human society get built from the ground up essentially Mm. And that's really fascinating. Like that's this, you know, and that's the stuff also that the Dark Eden books do so well that they're, oh, yeah. you know, that it's like, oh, it's really sure. There's all these survivalism aspects that are like key to the story, but it's really about how do people 
interact with each other. I think the Dark Eden books might be um, the books that we've mentioned on the most different episodes. Yeah. Do you think? I think they're, you know, like up they're, they're top up there. 10 books for me. <laughs> so they're in the running because they, they, they come up a lot, not only because they're good, but also because they do a lot of different things. So definitely yep. Yep. worth recommending yet again. Yep. Um, so, I mean, are there other things that we want to talk about in this pre-read or should it be like time for folks to go read the novel and... <laughs> You know. I want to read the novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's time for Matt to go read the novel so we yeah. can. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that we could get into. I, I think it might be worth mentioning just a couple of things that we've skipped over at least quickly. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to to just touch on is um, there's a thread. You know, I, I like talking about the, the history of tropes and ideas and um, story concepts mm-hmm. in sci-fi and in other things. So... It's worth talking about that, you know, the, the, the Robinson Crusoe thread in the history of science fiction, which is to say the thread of stories that are about building society or building. Um, I actually I think of them almost like in my head, I think of them like Minecraft stories. Yeah, <laughs> because they're fundamentally stories about building stuff. And it kind of doesn't matter what the stuff is like in some cases, it's society. In other cases, it's actually much more physical and and mm-hmm. uh, literal than that mm. i mean so much of I the mean, actual the fab family robinson right. so much like they build a treehouse they like I, I create gunpowder out of w- bullshit stuff right. that doesn't work but, yeah. <laughs> out of actual but, bullshit yeah yeah, yeah. I, um <laughs> when i was little i loved the swiss family robinson primarily did, because reading it gave me the exact same feeling that i got from building with blocks yeah it was the same feeling and i also get that feeling from like a video game where you build stuff yeah. i mean it's it's legos it's 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 exactly the particular feeling of satisfaction from constructing a little uh, a thing for um, what it's worth the swiss family robinson was the first book that i remember my dad reading to me as a kid same here man that's funny oh my dad also read me that book <laughs> that's cute but it's it is funny that it's like this you know yeah, like, you know, our dads moved to Alaska to have adventures. And then, like, you know, when we were babies, we're like, this is why you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, then, and then when they were teenagers, they were like, oh, this went awry. I guess you're going to read science fiction instead of... So, uh, so I'm not going to get rescued? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, man. Uh. But anyway, there's a there's obviously a long history of stories like this. Totally. Yeah. Um, Robinson Crusoe itself is is famous among other things in the history of um, Western literature for spawning more, or some people have claimed it has spawned more copies or like near copies, more facsimile books than any other single book. There was a in the 18th century, um, in the decades after um, it was published because it was incredibly popular when it was published there were like a lot of other books that people wrote Mm. that basically just tried to cash in it was one Mm. of the first books that had that sparked a boom of people cashing in Hmm. and that boom Mm. never really stopped i think because there's something fundamentally appealing about stories about people building things Mm -hmm. where the focus of the story you know there are these sort of there are subplots sure but the plot plot is we started to build we're building Right. We're getting close. 
we're done. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Swiss Family Robinson is again like literally in the name calling out that it's copying Robinson <laughs> right. Crusoe. Right. Well, right. There's but a I, what did a, uh, Neil Stevenson calls it? I think uh, engineer porn, where where you can uh, you can set up shop <laughs> on a clean slate and then just say like, okay, but if we were if we were rebuilding the world and doing it right, here's right. what we could do. I mean, you, know, yeah. you, you can bring yeah. your 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 values, whatever those are, to, to this I, clean slate. I, and mm-hmm. there is there's got to be like a a double digit percentage of all blog posts ever written are some form of this, <laughs> this story, <laughs> you know, like, yep. Yep. <laughs> well, it's also worth thinking about like in the science fictional space, like, uh, kind of just thinking like the, the, you know, Robinson family is also the name of the family in lost in space. Of course um, they are. That's not an accident, right? No, exactly. It's not an accident. And then you have, uh, tunnel in the sky, which Naden mentioned earlier. Maybe that was off mic. I don't remember now. Which I think is it like was. I think it was off mic. Yeah. Highlands, kind of like what we would now call young adult novel. Um, you know, which is like a direct response to Lord of the Flies, which is itself a response to the Robinson Crusoe. We can build, and him being like, "No, we can't." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Highland so, was somewhere in between the two, if I remember correctly. There, there was a, there was building, but then there was war, and there was right, I don't know, complicated right. politics, yeah, <laughs> complicated sex, weird, yeah, weird shit yeah, all around, yeah. <laughs> zero, zero gravity, <laughs> who knows what, fucking okay, Highland, <laughs> yeah. what a weirdo, um, yeah. So that you know, but that um, lineage is a really like interesting and ripe one, and it, you know, I mean, it speaks to, like even us, like our last, you know. 10 billion days and 100 billion nights, uh, Brown girl in the ring. And then this are all three, like vaguely post-apocalyptic in like really different ways. But also it's like this, you know, even in trying to read these different kinds of novels, it's like this theme that we kind of like hit on where it's not just post-apocalyptic, but expressly like this rebuilding technology blank slate element that comes in, you know, yeah. or not even technology, like society, Blank slate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth mentioning that Robinson Crusoe itself had antecedents, and like, there's a sense in which you know all the literature of founding new societies, going back to the Republic in the West, or going back to like Tao Huayuan in China, ancient China, or you know stories mm-hmm. of people founding new kingdoms or founding new societies um, in order to create the correct society, in order to build something that is done the right way. You know, there are so yeah. many of these, and there and yeah. it's, there's a long tradition of that, and that is something that. Um, Defoe was aware of for sure. Um, but I, it also reminds me of like newer stuff. Like, um, you, you said Lord of the Flies. Well, that makes me think of Battle Royale, which is itself mm. very explicitly modeled. You know, it's like a Japanese version of Lord of the Flies, except it's updated for the 1990s, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and like, you can trace that all the way back. I think, you know, I love finding these, um, these long, genealogies of stories because for me i think when i was little i had the naive idea that um stories that like certain types of story are these sort of eternal unchanging things that exist beyond the realm of humans like there but Mm. but it was it was and so it was a shock and a kind of an awesome in the original sense of the word awesome thing for me to discover that people made these up like quite literally like before before like certain stories were written down and and shared in certain ways um those things were not popular in the way that they are in the way that they were after like these things were made and Mm -hmm. um 
And so it's cool to see exactly how it like recreates right. the feeling of awe. That reminded me too. I have a, um, like three or four years ago, I wrote this blog post that was like every single post-apocalyptic book that I'd ever read rated. Um, it's out of date now, but I'll link it in the show notes because even that, which is like taking this very specific, like post-apocalyptic kind of like science fiction thing. I think there were like 25 books on it. <laughs> and like now there'd be like 35 or 40. <laughs> like it's such a kind of like rich, um, you know, and it, you know, we talked a little bit about how like it's, it's, you know, for it's very relevant to people's feelings right now, but it's also been such a rich, thing for so long and in some places it's actually like a you know almost like a survival skill like reading and writing post-apocalyptic like legends is a way of like remembering how to live through the next one i think there's also this uh, logistical issue when you're writing of like uh how much easier it is to create a new world if you nuke the old one first mm, because yeah. like mm. otherwise you're entangled with a really specific situation that you probably don't even understand like it like my deal with you know if i'm writing something some science fiction and then i'm like oh this has to take place in the real world i immediately just give up because i don't understand the real world and i never will <laughs> and uh so like <laughs> so it's so much easier to just you know you, you start start on a with the clean slate, and I, I, think, I think in sci-fi, especially, that that's a pretty strong motivation for uh, for doing the post-apocalyptic approach. Yeah, no, that's a good point. <laughs> or a fresh world, post-apocalyptic or or new world, right. whatever. Yeah, cool. Well, that's something. That's kind of the last thing I wanted to to talk about is that that thread in history. Cool. Um, what about you guys? Yeah, I'm curious, Nate. You know, I mean, like you you read it. I guess I'm sort of curious in two things. Um, one. Or actually, first, sort of, you like read it with this like book club of like other Alaskans and what the like general Alaskan consensus on the no book way. is. No way, I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then two is just sort of like you know for our like what's the pitch for our, like if someone who's gotten through this far and still don't know if they want to read it like what's the pitch like they'll like it if they like this oh, or man. like you know like why should they read this book? Hmm. Well, uh, so so first of all, the the takeaway was was pretty much uh universally positive in our group i think um i don't remember any real criticisms other than uh, uh some people got attached to characters before they realized what the format was going to be and then when those characters were uh you know uh quickly uh lost to time um <laughs> they, they were disappointed by that mm -hmm. uh so as far as I guess if you like colonization stories, if you like sociology, if you like um, biology, like botany is a big theme uh, without giving too much away. Botany is a huge theme and sort of the mm. um, types of. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. I can't say more, man. Uh, yeah, like, if we're not spoiling, uh, right. yeah. Even just saying we can't say more is a spoiler, yeah. which is why I gave yeah. that disclaimer up front. Like, yeah. it's just hard yeah. to talk no, about. It's. Uh, I I think if you like uh, biology themed science fiction, especially, yeah. which which I do, I usually um, am much more into that than uh, than sort of spacefaring engineering type stuff. And mm -hmm. this this is very uh, uh, organic. So yeah. I'm into that. And I like that it's it's biology and ecology. It's like the way all this yeah. stuff works together in systems, yeah. which is fun. Nice. Yeah. And it's got it's got a really uh a really charming character that comes into it uh toward 
I don't know, the midpoint or something. That I, that I like. <laughs> I There's some great so, characters. Like you're yeah, you're yeah. you're like side by side with some really fun characters throughout yeah. the novel. So would yeah. you guys say maybe it's um the you know embassy town meets dark eden it's with much better than of... embassy town was it's it's much more <laughs> in line it's also just just the way it's written and the way it where it's much more in line with dark eden and it's um a, you know it has a i i wouldn't call it like a literary science fiction novel like it's a very much like a genre science fiction novel but that said it's one that cares a lot about its characters mm. even <laughs> while you're only with them for a shorter period of time i mean the fact that like you can get so attached to them mm-hmm. in like these short story chunks of time speaks to like how good it is at writing these characters mm. so I, so I think, do- yeah go ahead uh, uh, sorry, the uh, the short story aspect is is definitely appealing as well. I think if you like anthologies, you might be interested in this, even if you don't typically read novels, uh, because mm. uh, there's almost almost different chapters kind of get into like subgenre territory. Where mm. they're, mm. uh, yeah, shades of Children of Time there. Mm-hmm. Um, so much. basically, what I'm hearing is Station Eleven and Dark Eden get in an elevator. They get <laughs> stuck in the elevator. And they have to fight to see who will survive and escape. Well, yeah. And then one of the children of time spiders ca- crawls down the shaft and rescues them. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I <laughs> I want that book. Oh, I just love those spiders. <laughs> that's what humanity needs. Like, that's who needs to be, like, president of Earth is a fucking spider collective. Jesus Christ. Dude, you're going to you're going to love uh, some, some of the later. <laughs> you're going to enjoy book. this book, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, wait. I think with that we, we need to wrap because it's late Friday night and I need to leave. So <laughs> we're gonna wrap up there. <laughs> the vagaries right. of recording with an Alaskan. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're. It's actually like when Matt and I can make it, so you're good. And thank <laughs> okay, you for okay. doing, you know, doing it like for your time. Um, yeah, actually, Nate, thanks so much for being on. Like, yeah, this, this was is fun. Fucking hope, uh, so cool. It was super fun to have you, dude. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, I'd yeah. be happy to do this again. Uh, you know, for the post read and also just in the future, if uh, if you guys yeah. find more cool books, uh, I'm probably probably into it. <laughs> but only only if we read more cool books. Not any lame stuff. Bullshit, dumb books. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 definitely we'll make sure to have you on in the post read that that will for All sure right. happen and uh um, sounds good you know we'll 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 look forward to that and then um also our listeners should if you're gamers check out um ectolibrium on steam like i said i'll put a link in oh, yeah. the show notes to nate's game I'm also let me let me say real quick. It, uh, it, we're trying to get a bunch of players to uh, test this early version. So right now, for the next I think like 20 days or so, it's it's bundled in an Indie Gala bundle. Um, so if you want to buy it for you know a penny or whatever, you can you can buy that bundle. I think I think it's a name your own price. Spend more than a penny, guys. Spend more than a penny. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, what I'm saying is, numbers of players are good. So if we get lots of feedback, that'll help make the the, nice. the future product better. Right. Anyway. So yeah, we'll all 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 get links from you and post all this in the show notes and on our Twitter page and everything like that, like we normally do, because it's a it's a fun game. The art's really cool, and like you know, Nate and I have been like collaborating on like stories and art and games yeah. and shit from a really early age. Like to the point of like, you know, coming up with video games as we hike <laughs> together. Uh, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. you should play this because while I didn't work on it, this game specifically, it's really cool. And I feel it's, very it's, fond it's of it. It's a science fiction story. 
<laughs> yeah. So whoa, yeah, you might like it. Okay. I like those. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you again, Nate. Um, you know, I'll I'll do our quick outro here, which is you All know. Right. We uh, no, no no stay stay on um, okay <laughs> I just let you, you know yeah. hang up immediately well, yeah. <laughs> bye <laughs> <Fuck off. laughs> we have a segment at the yeah. end of every guest episode where we kick the guest off and talk about them behind their back <laughs> talk shit yeah yeah the, de- the debriefing yep yeah. <laughs> um, now for the debrief with yeah. Matt and Adrian <laughs> man what a guest jeez <laughs> I hope they don't hear this later. <laughs> Um, it's behind the paywall <laughs> um, again book is semiosis super uh, buy it read it is good book um, we'll be back in a few weeks to talk about the um, book in depth with Nate uh, we'll probably hopefully have some sort of bonus episode this month I don't I don't know we haven't planned it very well um, this month so we'll we'll see where we go um, you know if you want to talk to us about the book you can find us at spectology pod on Twitter uh, or spectology pod at gmail.com if you want to talk to us there actually Nate do you have any social media that you want to shout out at all uh, yeah, yeah I mean you can find uh, ectolibrium on Instagram or on uh on Facebook or uh, cool. whatever those other social media networks are. Right, right. Should we shout out your wife's Instagram too? Because she has a yeah, pretty sure, big yeah, following. Yeah, she's and a that's great artist. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, so it's kind of it. It's Amanda Lamandala. Yeah. Again, I'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, his, Nate's wife has a really fucking cool Instagram where she does cool art stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then we'll, um, you know, thanks again to also to WJ, who does the, like, cool spacey music. You can find his stuff on SoundCloud. Um, thanks to Noah Bradley of noahbradley.com for the cover artwork that we use. Um, you know, it's been really nice of him to let us use that. And, yeah, we'll be back in a few weeks um, to talk more. So thanks again for chatting, guys. Looking forward. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Whoa.